I've run into it kind of the worst case scenario is run into it the hard way and then learned and adapted. What happens in the system behind the scenes is you usually have a different fund code to what they are offering. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. We're on season three, episode six. And in this episode, we're going back to the registered disability savings plan. Of course, anybody who's listened to the first two seasons knows that I am a big fan of the registered disability savings plan. I'm a big fan of uh, advisors getting to know about it. And this episode gave us a chance to dig into some technical details. This episode will be good for continuing education credits for British Columbia, for Alberta. This would be good for both a life and an accident and sickness credit. Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. It'll be good in all those jurisdictions. It'll be good for a professional development credit on the IROC side. It'll be approved for IAS credits through Advocus. And finally, it's good for a financial planning credit with FP Canada. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. So we're going to have a fair bit of depth in this discussion, actually. Lots of technical detail. You'll hear that Jonathan, who I have a discussion with here, is very knowledgeable, impressively knowledgeable about the RDSP. And he knows both sort of the practical implications of it. You hear a lot of that discussion here. He knows the rules very well. And I think it's important to recognize that his really great knowledge of the rules for the RDSP has helped him to get, I think, really good also at the sort of client-facing discussions about the RDSP and to recognize opportunities where maybe you would not normally see them. So this is the benefit to me of a high degree of technical expertise. I think it's good for everybody to have an overall knowledge of the RDSP, but to get to this level of knowledge, I think you have to really make a a concerted effort and really um, specialize. And this is where I think that we all can recognize the value of a specialist. And you'll hear in the interview that Jonathan has a few things that I was not aware of, a few misconceptions of mine that he helped to correct, which I really enjoy nothing better than getting to learn. So let's hear from Jonathan. I'll have a few notes following the interview. Okay. Good afternoon, Jonathan. Thanks very much for joining me today. 
Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan is a financial planner, both life and funds licensed, located in Southern Ontario. And we're going to be chatting today about RDSPs. And some of you will think that's my third time hearing about RDSPs on the podcast. And there's good reason for that. And I think Jonathan agrees with me here that they are quite underused uh, in Canada. And I think the more education we can get out there, the better. Is that fair, Jonathan? Do you think I'm not putting words in your mouth? Definitely agree. So the reason I brought you on is I know you have quite a few client scenarios related to RDSPs. And you and I chatted a little bit about this uh, beforehand offline, this scenario where you've got uh, a mom and I guess she was told, and I think rightly probably, to set up an RDSP when her child was younger. And now that child's an adult and there's a couple considerations around this. Can you talk through some of those considerations? Certainly. Yeah. So in that scenario, um, yeah. So the news got out to the mom that she should be doing one, but she didn't know why or or whatever reason. And she did do one, which was great. Um, And she got it set up. Um, The uh, now that the, uh, and they put a little bit of money in and then uh, that was it. Um, Now that the child's over 18 or over 19, um, you know, it's about putting the money in And, and the benefit of putting the money in after the child's 19, first of all is, um, is that we only have to deal with the child's income, not the parent's income. So the, the grant has increased significantly, or the potential for grant has increased significantly. Um, the only issue is about, uh, or the best part of that is the, the mother now can handle the account. We don't have to deal with guardianship. We don't have to deal with whether she's a qualifying family member. Uh, we don't have to work through those hurdles. And the guardian is, is the toughest hurdle of all. Um, so whether the child is, uh, has capacity or, or if the child is incapacitated, the, the mother can carry on with the, with the plan for the rest of her life um, uh, and, and carry on. And then if the child has capacity later on in life, they would just transfer to the child. The um, benefit here is, um, uh, is we're just dealing with the person who's probably making the contributions. They can control the money. If you run into a situation where a child is um, uh, a spendthrift, wants the money, wants to take it out, at least the parent can control that. So it's not you're not dealing with somebody who struggles with money or saving. You just you're dealing with the parent who has the overall goal. So, so and just in this case, then to be clear, that mom does have legal guardianship over the. No. the Oh, no, she's not in a legal guardianship position, but the child lacks capacity. So you're not concerned about the child sort of stepping up here. I don't have to worry about the capacity at this point because she's already the owner of the account. So right. it, it removes that uh, concern or that hurdle that you have to determine. So, uh, so would there be a minefield there if the child ever steps up and says, uh, you know, I want that money? Is that a concern at all? If the child, say, at some point is legally deemed to have capacity so if they legally deemed to have capacity they can now at the age of 28 if there is more grant than there are contributions to the plan uh they can request the money they can request uh they can take money out even though they're not named um on there other than the beneficiary uh so the uh the thing you can be to watch out for is always make sure there's more contributions than grant in there which uh, depending on income level could be uh, a bit of a struggle so um, but the, uh, so that's one thing to consider. So from age 28 on that kid can, even though they're not named on there, other than the beneficiary can actually demand the money as long as the grant is greater than 
than that. So the government will allow that to happen. Well, how these things go, it's such a technical plan. And I think this really yeah. sends us down an important path. But this is really quite different from our ESPs, for example, where with the RESP, the beneficiary really has no control over the plan at any point. It's always the subscriber who controls the plan in the RESP. And I find right. this, is, this is a little bit of a, a concern with our DSPs. And are you thinking maybe about an estate concern, Jonathan? Would that be the other area you might be going in here? Uh, well, the, the issue there is somebody has to take over the plan if the mother passes away. So um, in this scenario, unfortunately, the husband was not added or put onto the plan. That, that wasn't done initially, and we can't do that now. Um, Interesting. So that's the problem. Uh, so it's, it's up to, uh, it basically falls in her hands. So if anything happens to her, uh, somebody else has to be named on the account. Uh, so either it's going to be his guardian um, it, and or uh, is going to be um, a qualified family member. So um, uh, the father in this case would probably be the qualifying family member until 2023 when that's no longer available unless they extend that again. So, you know, there's these little silly little rules they have in place. So, so yeah, the, I guess the, the issue then is if mom, and this is a weird one with RDSPs again, but if mom dies while there's still funds in the plan, while the plan is still in place and the, the child's not in a position to become the plan owner at that point. It's a probated asset, isn't it? Doesn't it go through probate? And no, it has to go to the beneficiary or the guardian. Okay. And it doesn't pass through probate for mom then? No. And the fund company or whoever's managing it cannot do anything to reduce the value of that based on that. So they have an obligation as well in there. Interesting. And of course, you're only dealing with um, mutual fund providers or banks here as uh, providers of this. So it's sort of an interesting one because your mutual fund provider who, you know, like this is almost like an insurance arrangement, isn't it, Jonathan? It sounds more like something you'd see with an annuity. So. Yes, it is. But they can do beneficiaries now. Uh, that's been a number of years. So they're new at it, but they, they can deal with it. But it, this is just an RESP. Same as an RESP would uh, actually the executor takes over an RESP in the death uh, for an education plan, but there's a time limit, right? So it's, there's, it's gonna be dealt with at some point in time. This one, the time limit is a life limit. So it's a life of that, uh, the beneficiary. So if they're out of capacity though, it goes to their name. If they're not of capacity, we need a guardian or in the short term, a qualifying family member. Okay, perfect. And, and of course that's all in the income tax act, isn't it? I believe so, yeah. So. Which, yeah, kind of weird because you get this, uh, you know, what sounds more like an estate outcome coming out of the Income Tax Act. So Yeah, so the rules are there. You just got to follow them. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And on that note then, um, I know that you, you uh, mentioned this sunset clause in 2023, this issue that uh, has not been resolved at this point around ownership and guardianship and lack of capacity. Can you just chat a little bit about that? Well, originally it was supposed to stop in 2018, and then I think it went one more year because um, I was following it, and, uh, and then now it's 2023. So other than kicking the can down the road, um, at some point they need to uh, resolve that. So either they need to put, I think in the background, and I'm only speculating, it's only my opinion on this, is they're trying to figure out something else in the meantime so that somebody doesn't have to be a full guardian to be able to look after this, so that they don't have a solution yet. No, and it's a difficult overlap because 
really that's supposed to be, it's a section 92 of the constitution issue. It should be provincial matter, right? It's a property ownership question, but because it's an income tax act question, it's federal. So it's like the federal government. And I, I love the RDSP. I think it's a great plan, but it kind of got rolled out without involving the provinces too much. Right. Okay. That's a good history note. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, and you saw that, I don't know if you picked up on this, but, um, New Brunswick actually, so Quebec, first off, does not actually uh, give any exemption for income from an RDSP against uh, d- provincial disability supports. Okay. And New Brunswick only gives a partial exemption. So New Brunswick actually still regards the RDSP as a, and I can't remember what they call it, New Brunswick, but there's a, there's a form of income that is only partially counted against your provincial disability supports. So all the other provinces change their provincial disability support legislation following that. But yeah. Which is good. It, yeah, it is good. It just was like, oh, I guess the provinces have to do this. And it kind of got <laughs> done in the three or four years after for most provinces. So yeah, um, so yeah it's going back to uh, this client scenario then. So do you have a relationship with the child at all? Is there, like, can you deal with that person or how, no. how's it going to go? Pretty nonverbal, at least for me. Uh, the parents understand what he's saying, but um, yeah, no, but the relationship is neat because because uh, uh, what's uh, after setting, uh, making some changes to the RDSP and doing what I could within the rules, I uh, get that going, get contributions going in that and meeting them at their home at uh, this time. Uh, what's really neat is that the, the uh, their son is really nice. And uh, you know what? I got a hug when I, when I left and uh, the parents are like, oh, he, he likes you. He trusts you. So uh, the what's neat about the RDSP is you're, you're building that extra layer of uh, relationship with the clients. So you're actually involved. Um, so you've got that, uh, uh, that bond. And what's neat is that the kids know who you are. So you're creating a bond and a level of trust with those kids as well. And so there's a familiarity for them as well. And in some cases, they don't want change. So that that uh, you make sure, you know, when you're in it, you're in it for good. So you just uh, do, do your best job. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. And you mentioned that the mom was sort of told or she read somewhere to set this up. You had nothing to do with the setup of this account? No, they're new clients for me. So. Okay. And, yeah. But you did, you've transferred the RDSP into your, your book of business or are they still running it with their old firm? No, they're in my book of business. So I've moved it to a firm that I'm uh, familiar with. Actually, it was with a firm. It was just an, basically an agent of record change I had to do because it was with a firm that I could uh, deal with. And I did not want to disturb that much. Uh, the issue is uh, if I transfer it to a new institution, the problem is um, he's now over 18. Oh, that's a good point. He's now over 18. So he has to sign. So I can't move it from one institution to another. So um, it was an institution I could represent. And so I age record chains all I, all I had to do and carry on and then make any other you know, just uh, maintenance and make sure the account's up to date on everything, investment choices and that. But the issue I did run into is I can't move it without it just going in his name. Then I have to deal with the guardianship or qualifying family member if I had to do that. And I chose not to do that. She's, her name's already on it. That's the ideal situation as far as I'm concerned. Okay, yeah. And I believe this is still true today. I think for folks on the mutual fund or even on the IROC channel, you really only have a couple of choices for providers. It's a pretty limited window. I know the, a bunch of the banks and some credit unions have it, but 
pretty narrow. And you mentioned actually that you even have to use a different set of fund codes for the for the same fund because of this. Yeah. So in the background, uh, the problem I ran into is my uh, uh, my rep uh, isn't fully f- uh, familiar with it. So. I've run into it kind of in the worst case scenario is run into it the hard way and then learned and adapted. What happens in the system behind the scenes is you usually have a different fund code to what they are offering, even though it's the same fund. They have a different system running usually. Um, and what that means is it's not as robust. So if you want to do rebalancers, have multiple funds, things like that, uh, you can't run rebalancers. You can't do all the extra things. So I usually end up trying to deal with a portfolio um, a portfolio fund that just one fund solution for long term because it's it's not about uh, short and long term investing at this point. Uh, it's one or the other. So um, yeah. So and I found that with both institutions. So there's uh, some limitations. Just got to find out what they are. You got to probe and ask. So yeah. And of course, no. Just for the insurance, I think that we've t- talked about this before on the podcast. But for the insurance licensed folks, if you only carry an insurance license. There's no solution that's available right within the insurance world. It's actually not permitted. Again, going back to the Income Tax Act, have any product that has a direct beneficiary designation. So, okay. So on that note, so you you say like this child lacks capacity, and have you have you talked with the the mom in this case or the parents in this case about what happens if the if the child dies prematurely? Is this a is this ever something that comes up or to uh, to sort of tough an issue to talk about. It comes up if they bring it up. Um, usually that's if it's a concern, if, the, if that's an issue. The other uh, thing that does come up quite a bit is that they don't expect a full uh, life expectancy. So that also comes up. So even though it might not be soon, it might be you know in, in their 50s or 60s, they, that's, that's their life expectancy. It depends on what, what that is. And each one's the same, uh, each one's a unique case. So um, in that scenario, it's what happens to that. And basically, uh, the answer to that is it, it basically goes to um, their estate. So unless they can sign a will, so if they can sign a will, that's great. They can uh, designate that out. But if they cannot, then it would fall under the provincial rules for what would be intestate. So um, usually those rules go to mom and dad. If not, they go to uh, siblings. Uh, if they do marry, uh, then it goes to the immediate family as well and then to their kids. So. It's usually, you just check your local province. Um, I'm from Ontario, I know those rules. So uh, it would just fall under, it would go to the state, it would be intestate, and then it would be distributed to whoever uh, would, uh, the, the provinces is deemed proper in that case. So. I, I always think about this scenario, you know, I, I paint these worst case scenarios in my head, Jonathan, right? In this scenario where like grandparents fund a plan, you know, mom and the kid are together, dad is estranged, Mom and the kid are in the same car crash, right? Common disaster. And right. the money that grandma and grandpa put in the plan ends up now with estranged father. That kind of thing. And I, maybe it's too what if to even go down that path. But Well, I find my experience has been it's usually the parents that are doing the, the, the funding of it. And it also uh, can be uh, one parent who's funding it, especially if dad is or mom is estranged. Um, and that would be an issue there is what happens at that point. But um, on the one hand, if mom and the, and the kid are gone, um, they're not really going to care after that point. So, But grandparents would because they're watching the money go to somebody they don't want. 
in that case, unfortunately, you cannot open two RDSPs. You cannot do that. So the best scenario in that case is make sure you have one open before the kid is 18. Then mom and dad can designate the beneficiaries. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, so on the plan you have in this scenario, there is you have the beneficiary designated, right? I think you already mentioned that. The well, yeah, it goes to the parents if yeah. something happens to the kid. So yeah. that's where it would go. Otherwise, it goes to the kid's name. So perfect. So if the kid survives, it goes to the kid. If uh, the kid does not survive, it goes back to the parents. In this case, because of ownership. So yeah. And have you uh, chatted with uh, estate lawyers about sort of the capacity test in Ontario, anyways, for writing a will? Do you know roughly where that would sit? I usually leave that up to the lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Each scenario is a different, and it yeah. depends. And I find that it's it's different by each lawyer's standard too. So it's uh, I would leave that up to them to decide if there's capacity or not. Yeah, so. perfect. It's actually something if uh, folks are listening and they want to check in on this a little bit, we talked about this with Aaron on season two, I want to say episode 17 of this podcast, I believe we talked about uh, sort of the capacity test for writing a will. And it seems like right now the pendulum has swung that it's a fairly liberal capacity test for this. So interesting. It's on the moment too, I find. Yeah, it's exactly. That's why I say right now the pendulum is, is there, right? And yeah, you don't know what you're going to get. Um, Anything else that's, uh, that strikes you as interesting or noteworthy about this particular case, Jonathan? Um, no, it's, well, to me, it's straightforward. Um, it's, it's, it's all about uh, making the contributions as long as we can and, uh, and as early as we can. Um, the best part of uh, waiting until after 19 is the grant is significantly more in any case because you're only dealing with the beneficiary's income level, not the parent's. So um, in some cases, the, the parents make uh, more than 97, I think, yeah. um, and, which, and that number changes every year, of course. So they make more than that, then it's, uh, I, I find it's not as much of an impact to contribute prior to age 18. Um, if there's limited capacity to um, making contributions, then I want the biggest bang for my buck. Yeah. So, and so the 300, 300% is what I want to aim for as well. Mm -hmm. The 200% is still good enough. Uh, you want to get as much of the money in as early as you can to get the time value of that money to grow over time, that con the compounding on that. Yeah, perfect. That's I agree with all that. That's uh, that's and nobody has, of course, unlimited resources to dump into all of their various registered plans and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, so then you mentioned a couple of other uh, scenarios, and I know one that uh, again ties back to something we talked about. Uh, way back in season one, but I know everybody who deals with RDSPs or just disability tax credit in general runs into scenarios where somebody who, like you look at a scenario and you say that kid probably should qualify, but either the physician or, or sometimes CRA comes back and says, no, we don't agree. So can you talk through some of, some of that type of thing, Jonathan? Well, I find that um, I don't have an issue with CRA in most cases. So usually CRA agrees in, in most cases. I don't seem to have a problem with it not happening that way, at least because uh, the issue I have is usually trying to get the doctor to sign the forms. And uh, I know in Ontario, I'm not sure about all the provinces, a uh, nurse practitioner now can also do the forms as well. Um, and it depends on which doctor you get as well. But the issue I run into, and for cases that I know qualify, absolutely qualify, the doctor, in one case, just sent a sticky note back on the form and says, you don't qualify. 
The problem, I think, is the forms themselves are not encouraging people to apply for the disability tax credit because most people look at it and say, well, I have to be completely um, uh, disabled and unable to work to qualify. So that's the biggest hurdle we run into. Um, but then I say, well, one of my first disability uh, tax credit clients and disability savings fund clients um, just had a stutter. So fully working yeah. and, uh, and capable at uh, raising a family and doing everything else at the time. So uh, when I say that, that's the qualification. That's uh, people are like, oh, okay. So that usually gets people encouraged to apply because it's like, oh, it's, I said, ignore the form. You just have to prep the people for the form get them to uh, just look past that. Um, and then when it deals with the doctor, and sometimes you need the quote from the uh, disability tax credit site that says the, what the purpose of the disability tax credit is. And that is ideal. And the, the, my paraphrase on that is, if you spend more money than most people because of um, a medical, mental, or physical uh, ailment, um, and unfortunately, eyeglasses don't count, and it's a podcast. You can't see them wearing glasses. Uh, the expensive glasses, I think I should qualify, but that doesn't work. <laughs> I have glasses too, John. I, you can't there see them. I take them off when so, I'm on camera. So, yeah. So that's yeah. my joke of the day. But anyways, the, yeah. um, the, if, you have a, if you have an extra expense, the purpose of the disability tax credit is to just help, just give you a helping hand. And it's not saying that you need to submit a receipt to get it. It's just here's a fixed amount of cash. Uh, just as a tax credit that you can claim. And that's the window to the disability savings plan. Yeah, so. perfect. And just, yeah, with your client with the stutter, I mean, the speech pathologist is actually one of the, the potential healthcare providers that can sign this thing. And right. it's, I do see this. There's various levels of what an outsider might observe here. But as you say, if you look at what the form says, you look at the CRA website and kind of take those two things hand in hand. I think sometimes the doctor looks at it and says, oh, it's going to be like thousands and thousands of dollars of tax savings. And maybe it's not fair that somebody qualifies, but you're in Ontario, you're looking at, if it's a, a child, you're about $3,000 in tax savings, I think. Yeah. And so, for an adult, about $2,000 in tax savings. It's worth it, especially when you go back 10 years. Yeah. that's Now that can be meaningful, right? To going back 10 mm -hmm. years, right? Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. But uh, I do have one, another client that has uh, MS and denied by the doctor initially. So, uh, but the doctor is now going to sign the forms after okay. the, that, that note was sent off that this is what the disability tax credit is for. Oh, now they're going to fill the form. So that's a success story that now I've got to wait for CRA, but I know CRA will approve. I absolutely know that. So I just okay. need the doctor's form. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, MS is, uh, I'm sure once they see that diagnosis on there, that's, that'll lead CRA to, to the right conclusion. So, yeah. Um, I, where I've seen it go badly with CRA, I've seen it and myself in my own family with developmental disabilities. That's the one okay. I find CRA is not necessarily, uh, I don't, they, they reject one out of six of those based on oh, the public information on their website. So okay. yeah, it's, so that's a, a little tougher And that form. Yeah. I think that it, the form got better about a year ago. I don't know if you noticed this or not. Okay. Um, but even now, I think that the form could start with like a preamble that says, hey, just go through the form and then make your decision. Right. Yeah. That's what you have to tell the client or I have to tell the client. Just ignore the form. Just go, just get it through. That, but the biggest hurdle is I have a couple of people that stopped at the form. They haven't even gone to the doctor. They, they won't pursue it anymore. 
Um, it's nothing I could do. Do you find any of the doctors are actually charging for it? Do you find any of them bill for it separately? I'm not, I don't know. I usually tell them to book an appointment and present the form. At least the doctor gets paid to have the appointment. Yeah. Uh, help them out. You know, uh, otherwise they're probably not required to be paid to do the form unless they have a fee for it. I don't know. Each doctor's own. Yeah, I have seen doctors charge between fifty and two hundred dollars to do the form, depending. Yeah. But but certainly not every doctor has done has charged for it. So. That also depends on the province. So. It's true. That's a good point. <laughs> yes, that's such a such a provincially specific item. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then. Uh, you had one that I found really interesting here that uh, I don't think I've ever run into. I know it's possible, but uh, you specifically dealt with an RESP rollover to the RDSP. Yes, I have a couple that uh, with a child with uh, developmental uh, disability. The option for school was always there, but not it didn't pan out. So um, he's able to go to school, uh, but not full time or anything like that. So. The, uh, since we didn't have a use for the RESP, we basically opened up an RDSP uh, when the child was 19. So after, uh, that's when I had met uh, the child. So uh, we had done it after. Um, so the parents are contributing into the RDSP, but the question was, what do we do with the RESP? And funding's a bit of an issue. So um, because it's, for, for those that, you know, you're worried that, you know, are we going to be able to, you know, coming up with the $1,500 a, a year to come up with that uh, might be an issue or it's, it's uh, they've got other things going on, you know, other kids, school, or, uh, you know, other things going on in their life. Get the money in early. Um, I have two options. One option is I can take the RESP. I can roll it over other than the grant. I can roll over the earnings without the 20% penalty because we're actually closing an RESP. So I can roll that over and I keep the 20% of that, but it does not qualify for a grant. And it will be taxable at the other end, okay, as income. Or take the 20% hit and then contribute it over the next two, three or four years. $1,500 is gonna get me 300 and 200% return on the grant, that's a better plan. And then later on, they can try to come up with $1,500 going forward after that. And that's probably all we're going to get every year until the child's 49 um, or we hit 70,000. So um, that's what we're going to be getting. But the, the benefit there is, um, uh, so the benefit there is we're getting much more bang for our buck initially, uh, whereas funding could be a little bit better down the road. At least we got it through. 20% to me is not worth it. But if we're fully funding the 1500 a year, that's going to be uh, easily done. And this is extra money on top of that. Then do the rollover, get the 20% savings, at least because it's just a contribution that now at that point in time, over and above what you're originally doing. And of course, mom and dad will still take the refund of contributions at that point. They're, they, they get their principal back. Yeah, they can do that, but it's the it's the earnings in the RESP that's in question that has the twenty percent hit if their grant is returned. Yeah, perfect. So I mean, you could use the contributions to get you to that fifteen hundred dollars as well, and that's what we did. We used it all, but we took the twenty percent hit on the earnings and uh, and just rolled it all into a TFSA, um, and then 
just roll $1,500 a year into the RDS, RDSP every year just to get that uh, uh, funded. Do you do any prior year buybacks with that too? or He's, We did it when he was 19. Yeah. So if we did it prior years, it's on the parent's income. Yeah. And if we don't, it's on, on, on the child's income. So, so you're, the parents are making more than 97 a year or whatever. So you'd yeah. be buying back previous years at only 100% and not really yeah. necessarily worth it then. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, it's such a complicated thing because you kind of need to jump in the time machine when you're doing those things. You have to look back to <laughs> what was happening in 2019, what was happening in 2018, what was happening. Right. Yeah. It's, and I mean, the one nice thing here is that CRA does send a letter to the RDSP beneficiary every year explaining how yes. much grant they have available, but it's. That is a, uh, a great tool for an advisor. Um, ask for that every February, put it in your calendar, get your staff to uh, contact everybody, get a copy of that. Cause that tells you uh, a couple things. First of all, how much they can contribute that year. And although they have disclaimers that it's, it's not accurate, it is pretty good. The, uh, it'll tell you how much grant to get. So you can bang onto the penny, put the right amount of money in to get all the grants, especially if you're funding for previous years, cause there is a limit. You can't do all 10 in one year. You're only limited up to 10,500 as grant. On the other hand, I've had two this year where they said zero and zero. And oh. uh, so they call and says, well, it says zero. So what does that mean? It says, well, your disability tax credit program, you need to reapply to start that process. You're probably at the end of the five years and that's the reason for, for that issue. So no worries, uh, we can catch up on this year, next year, once they get that in, once we get the letter, then we get confirmation that they're getting it. Otherwise, if I contributed right now, uh, it's money going into the RDSP, but there's no grant coming for that. So if that's what you're searching for, you want to make sure you're getting it. And of course, this is something you and I have chatted about previously, but this is a, a really great change that was made, uh, was it last year now, to the RDSP, that if you lose the disability tax credit, mm -hmm. you no longer have to collapse the plan. Yeah, you didn't have that uh, five-year, yeah, that rule. <laughs> I think it was a five-year rule if you had to close it in that period, so. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how it worked, but essentially it led to having to collapse the plan if you lost disability tax credit and real nightmare scenario for, you know, people who get rejected sort of, you know, just for administrative reasons or whatever, right? So. But I've actually had that happen, so. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so better, better to have that, uh, that, that sort of forgiveness in place. Yeah, so basically the rule now says if you, uh, lose access to disability tax credit, you can, no more contributions, but you can essentially right. keep the plan in place and yeah. essentially go to the RIF, RIF type formula that starts at age 60, right? That's Well, or 10 years after the tenure yeah. of the grant, so. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you can start to do uh, disability assistance payments at 10 years after the last grant then without right. losing anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, so perfect. Which ties into your shortened life expectancy. Uh, so that would be the other answer. It's, and always, so the, the bottom line, the, the golden rule is uh, start early, contribute early so that you have options earlier, later on in life. <laughs> so just going back to this RESP, and I agree with that. I think that's, you know, again, time value of money and just it sets the plan up for so much better outcomes. Just going back to the RESP child here. So um, did you have the parents set up the RESP or was that something they had done with another advisor? Um, I think in that case, I had started it. So, 
yeah, I'm a big RESP fan and I get all the parents all involved uh, as early as I can on those as well. So, Yeah, I, I agree with that. And then was there a concern at the time? You said, well, this child has a disability and maybe we shouldn't be doing it. Or do you say, look, this child has a disability and if they go to school, it's just going to be more expensive, more involved, more cumbersome. How do, what's your thought process there? If there's any chance of going to school, you want to do the RESP. And then if they're not going to school, then, and they're getting the disability tax credit, then definitely uh, we can roll that right into the RDSP or cash and then contribute into the RDSP, depending on income. And the child only has to be 19 to do that, eh? Uh, yeah, because it's based on the previous tax year. That's why it's not 18. Right, so. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking it was 21 because of the uh, RESP. Oh, uh, Oh, wait, you want to cash out of the RESP? To go RESP to RDSP to do that rollover. But you, you said you did it with a 19-year-old, so. You know what? I don't know. <laughs> Uh-oh. I could have been close. <laughs> I'll, I'll confirm. I'll, I'll have that in the, uh, the, the post-amble to the show here. Yeah, so. I, uh, you know what? I, uh, I'm not, uh, I didn't uh, check that. All right. Well, anyways, it's, if you did it, you did it, right? It's a, yeah. Um, but well, you can a, cash them out at any time. It's, that's the thing is you can cash yeah. out an RESP at any time. Anyways. Oh, because yeah, of course you weren't keeping the grants, so it doesn't matter. Right. No, it doesn't yeah. matter. 21 is you can't roll it over to a kid. Yeah. Uh, or to another sibling is the, yes. is the issue. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Somehow I had those two. So appreciate that. Never mind. I won't have it in the post amble. We got it. So, all right. It's such a complicated plan, Jonathan. This is exactly what I find is there's like a million little iterations of. Yeah. Yeah. So another one, and actually this is curious because um, those that listened way, way back to season one, episode nine, heard uh, Ian there talk about a specified disability savings plan. And a few months ago, Ian emailed me and said, hey, do you know somebody who can help with this? And I said, well, I happen to know somebody who does a lot of RDSP work. And I sent that over to you, Jonathan. And can you just talk a little bit about that specified disability savings plan scenario? So the, the benefit of a specified uh, disability savings plan is at some point, if you feel your life expect or the, the beneficiary's life expectancy is going to be five years or less, uh, you get a, uh, a doctor to um, do a form for that. And then what it does is allows you to make withdrawals without losing the grant and bonds uh, during that five-year period. And you're allowed to take up a 10000 a year out of that, which is significant enough that you could probably drain all the grant and bonds out of that in that five-year period, provided the beneficiary is still alive. So, and then there's, you can do a withdrawal the year following uh, your death as well. So there is that aspect in there as well. But um, the, the issue is that if there is grant and bonds in there and the, and the child does die and you didn't get it out as a specified plan, then it falls into a regular uh, withdrawal uh, which would be, mean the grant and bonds within the last 10 years are refunded, whatever's left. Um, and there's no, uh, there's no rule that says first money in or out. I'm not sure what the rule, uh, what, that, uh, what they deemed as what's uh, considered 10-year money and what's considered five-year money and last year's money. Um, that's not clear, but, and I haven't run into it, so I haven't run into that scenario. But the benefit of that is you can contribute into the plan. And if you feel that uh, you only got five years left or the beneficiary has five years left, uh, even though you just made a, a grant last year 
in the current year, you can start making withdrawals and, and reaping the benefits of this program that you otherwise would not. So I didn't know about the withdrawal the year after death. That's interesting. And I, I double check on the specified part, but right. uh, it's, uh, I know you can make a withdrawal in the year after death in the plan. Um, and it, it, with regards to DAPs or LDAPs and, and, and all that, but the, um, uh, the specified, I know you can, um, if it's still considered specified because you're still in that five-year window, that may or may not apply. You need to check your provider to double check that information. So, Perfect. Yeah. And just to do the acronym check here. So LDAP is the lifetime disability assistance payment, which is essentially the RIF, not a perfect analogy, but the RIF type schedule that starts at age 60. It's a yes. 3% withdrawal the first year, roughly, right? That's Right. <laughs> have you actually had a client get to the point where they're taking LDAPs, Jonathan? No, it's, it's been, it's really, most of my plans are less than 10 years old. So I'm not there at, at the 10 year mark. I'm not there yet. And then most of my clients aren't near 60 yet. So they're all younger than that. So. Yeah. The only place where I could see that already being a, a real concern is if you had, you know, you talked about your client with the stutter before, right? So if you right. had somebody in that situation and let's say that guy was 47 or 48 in mm. 2008 when the plan was introduced. Right, but right I'd only have one year contribution in there. It's true. You, yeah, maybe. Yeah, you could have got a couple of years of contributions in there. That's it. And yeah, because you have to stop at fifty. Nothing. Yes. Once yeah. once you blow up the that fiftieth candle, right? No more contributions. And I hate talking to clients who are forty nine and hesitating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've had a few of those, and they haven't gone through with it. Um, I finally got one where they're over ninety seven thousand, but I'm saying, hey, it's a one for one. And without the letter or anything like that, we just did a, a $200 contribution just to test the waters to make sure that we get the grant. Yeah. Uh, we got the grant, so I know for this year I can, uh, we can do the other 800, and that's a one for one. So 1,000 gets you 1,000. Yeah. And we'll do that for the next, uh, I think it's eight or nine years. So there's almost 20,000 that'll be in that plan for retirement, um, plus a 10 years of growth in there. And uh, it's better than an RSP at this point. So, and you could even do buyback if the person was. Just I'm waiting for the letter. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. yes, yeah. I could do a buyback. I just yeah. got to wait for the letter. Okay. The letter will tell me. So, can I ask Jonathan Bradley? You, you are, um, I think, of any advisor I've talked to, uh, the most knowledgeable about the RDSP. Thank uh, you. Yeah, I, I find most people are kind of broadly aware of it. At least, uh, it's a surprise when I ask who has set one up and anybody says, yes, I have, right? It's just, you know, in a class of 40 people, if I ask that question, maybe 10% of the room have set one up. Right. Um, what was your impetus for doing this? Was it, uh, what, what, what sort of motivated you here? Um, it's available and it's what's best for the client. And uh, I like the program. So, um, but uh, the anal side of me, which is a, a big portion of me, uh, likes the rules and, and I, you know, I, I got to figure it out. And, uh, and then the other side of me is I, it's, it helps the clients and not only does it help the beneficiary, it helps the parents. And it's, it's a whole, it's a whole plan to help the whole family out. Um, that's, that's my biggest motivation is it's, it's helping people. Um, yeah, it's good for business. Yeah. It, it, it keeps, uh, you, um, uh, front and center and better than 
uh, in the eyes of the client better than anyone else out there. And you want to always have that appearance that you know what's going on. And most people, uh, there's nobody else than you to, to deal with this. But it's very, uh, it's rewarding as well. It's absolutely rewarding, uh, especially when you get to meet uh, some of these kids, um, in my case, and uh, they're, they're great kids. They're just, and, and, and they, some of them are struggling. Uh, you feel for them. Um, they're struggling with uh, their mental illness, um, their, uh, uh, their um, development disability, uh, and their illness as well. And uh, you have, there's, there's all those aspects to it. So it just, uh, it's something that you could really profoundly impact the client and make it so much better. And I hate leaving free money on the table. So, <laughs> I, I mean, from my perspective, we have this, like I said, for my daughter, and and I know that there's a bunch of other financial struggles, but she will have a pool of retirement assets on which to draw. Yeah, and that's, that's very reassuring. Yeah, uh, and that's it's it's really for the parents. <laughs> I feel yeah. uh, the the kids don't necessarily understand at this point, but they will when they're older. So, yeah, absolutely. Um. Any uh, last minute comments around RDSP, Jonathan? Anything you think folks should know out there? Do you, I guess one thing I'd like to know specifically is, do you think it's better to, to learn it like you've learned it to really dig in? Or should people you know, connect with somebody like you who knows the plan very well? I think those, uh, there's a, a lot, because there's only 15 companies that do this and not everybody has a license to be able to deal with that, they should connect with somebody who can do that for them or uh, are willing to um, or uh, and and find an avenue as well as they should advocate uh, either their MP to get insurance companies on this or get a mutual fund license just to do RDSPs or uh, an MFDA uh, uh, MFDA or IROC license just to get to do RDSPs if that's you know you just want to just do that um, and that opens the door. But again, there's only 15 companies, so we need more companies on board just to allow more choices for the clients as well. But um, the, uh, I think the, the key thing is to always ask the clients if anybody's receiving display tax credits, because that's the door open. Um, that's the easy, because once they have that, the RDSP is a natural follow through. So that, that gets you going. But to partner up, um, if you do have, uh, you can deal with a company, the companies are supposed to know what they're doing at their end. So lean on them for answers. Let them double check your information. But the CRA site, as wordy as it is, it is actually pretty good. Um, understanding LDAP and DAPs, it took me a while to figure out what that really meant till I figured out it's really a RIF or an LRIF. <laughs> and it made sense to me. And once the, the structure is like an RESP, and I know RESPs took a while to figure out because you just understand the structure. I know RESPs very well now, but so it's easy to say, well, they just took the same structure and just applied different rules to it. So once you, I associate it to what it is, then it, it's a lot easier to deal with it. But you got to start dealing with it to start getting to know it more. Once you, it forces you to learn more. So, and then lean on your providers. Yeah, I, I like this comment. The provider is... They're well-equipped to deal with it. It's one of the nice things about having a small number of provide providers because you know they're doing a lot of the accounts. And yeah. I, I agree with the comment too about pushing this with your member of parliament. I think that it's something that if, if MPs just became aware that this was a, a, 
an issue that people aren't accessing the RDSP because of that concern. I, somebody out there can deal with that, right? That's, that's a solvable so they, problem. They made changes to it because you couldn't even go backdate this before in 2008. They made that change, I think, in 11 or 12 or 11 or 10. They made it so it's backdatable. Yeah. Um, so it's been modified and that qualifying family member has been pushed, pushed back from 2018 to 2023. There's improvements to be made and it's, a, it's relatively new and it's really new on the income side. The income side hasn't really been tested yet because people haven't had enough time to save a lot into there yet. And you got to still wait that 10 year window. And these have been around for 12 years. So not a lot of time in there. So the income side is going to be new to every advisor. So every's, today, everybody's going to learn as fast as everybody else on the income, how it actually works as you get examples. But right now it's save, 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 get the bond, get the, get the grant. Oh, uh, one key thing that everybody should be aware of is the bond. If their income's less than 30 something and up to 45, it's prorated. Uh, that bond comes in at the end of February every year regardless of contributions. So there is up to $20,000 uh, free money uh, available. So if nobody wants to pay into this, but they're in that income category, especially the beneficiary at over 19, there's 20,000 available and uh, they'll pop in 11 uh, if they've uh, qualified for the last 10 years. So uh, for the current year and the previous 10, so. Yeah, I have sent a few of my, uh, my pro bono financial planning clients to a specific bank to get that set up because the, the numbers there are small and it's just better to have the plan, just like the Canada learning bond, right? That yep. way. Yeah. Um, and actually I did want one last question here if I can, and that's uh, yes. how challenging is it to actually open the account? So you, you talked about disability tax credit and the T2201. Uh, you talked about the, the fund code sort of issue. How challenging is it to actually open the RDSP account? Once you know the path, it's easy, okay. but it's getting the disability tax credit. Then as long as they have that, it's opening the account, but you just got to think it through, get that letter. Even if you have to wait till the following February to get it, get the letter. Cause that really guides you along. Uh, you can probably figure it out as you've done a few after a while, but initially uh, just, just go with the flow. Uh, get the letter because you can always backdate. You can always uh, get the previous, uh, you can get the current year anyways, if you're missing a year and just get the, um, just find out what the numbers are, but just walk it through, walk it with through with the client, just check with the provider, uh, double check with the provider as you're going through, they will teach you and, and you'll figure it out and you'll, you'll carry on. It'll be, it's easy once you've got the path and where you want to go and, and what you want to do. So. Perfect. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. It's very generous and incredibly knowledgeable. I really appreciate it. Thank Have you. Have a wonderful day. Okay. I hope everybody learned as much from that as I did. I, I had a great learning experience there. Um, I have a few things to follow up on. I just want to follow up on the RESP to RDSP transfer. So I'm going to include the link to the correct form here. CRA has a form rollover from the RESP to RDSP. It's form RC435 ECHO. I'll put that in the show notes for today. But the form, as it often does, answers our questions. And I will say, Jonathan is correct here, that you do not have to be 21 
in order to make this transfer. That doesn't surprise me. He knew all of his other rules. What has to happen is you have to meet one of four conditions. So the RESP beneficiary has severe and prolonged mental impairment. So I believe that's the one that uh, Jonathan would have done his transfer under. The CRAs approved the disability tax credit certificate. This is one of four conditions. You don't have to meet all the conditions. So we could also have a disability tax credit certificate indicating that the beneficiary has a severe and prolonged mental impairment. I would suggest that that's probably more likely than the first condition because hopefully if you have a client who's in this situation, they've gone and got the disability tax credit. The next is, and this is the one I was confused on, if you have, this would really apply in a family plan setting. So in a family plan setting, all the beneficiaries under the RESP are at least 21 years old and not pursuing post-secondary education. And the RESP has been open for at least 10 years, but you don't have to meet that criteria. So you can use one of the other two criteria to make that transfer. And the last is the RESP has existed for at least 35 years, which I suppose you could run into periodically. Um, so what happens then when you have, and this is where I'm going to correct something. I think Jonathan and I both glossed over this in the interview, but what you're rolling over here is mom and dad's contributions fine. That's not really relevant. Assuming mom and dad funded the plan, mom and dad can always take their refund of contributions. You're going to end up repaying grants and bonds. You don't get to roll over the grants and bonds. So the real question here is about the accumulated income payment from the RESP. Of course, normally, if you were to just collapse the RESP, what would happen if if we collapse it, you would get your contributions back, you would restore all the grants and bonds back to the government, and you would have your accumulated income payment. And that accumulated income payment would normally be taxable. If you take it as income, tax at your marginal tax rate plus 20%, or you could roll it into the plan subscribers RRSP. So we're going a different route here. Now we're gonna take that accumulated income payment and roll it into the plan beneficiaries, our DSP. And of course, that's gonna be done then on a, essentially what's a tax deferred basis. So another area that Jonathan uh, delved into that I never even really thought about, honestly, something that never occurred to me was that he mentioned he has to use a different set of fund codes for the RDSP. This does make sense as he was going through it, of course, it makes a lot of sense, but I want to recognize something here that is a little bit problematic. That means you're only dealing with the sort of off-the-shelf, plain vanilla version of the mutual fund you're using, and you have a much more limited selection of funds available. And the reason for this is because the mutual fund companies that offer this, they have to have that fund tied into the grants and bonds program so you'll actually see this if you ever look at a client's RDSP statements, you'll see how they match up the grants and bonds to the fund code as well. But that means that a lot of the benefits that we have today for mutual fund providers, a lot of the automated plans are not available. So Jonathan mentions automatic rebalancing as an example here. And I think it's a great concept to bring up you know, if you've got maybe a fifty or $60,000 RDSP for a 25-year-old, maybe you don't care so much about automated rebalancing. And, and I think that's probably fair at that age. But 
when you get a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 55-year-old and you've got the RDSP in place, well, now you might have several hundreds of thousands of dollars in there. And at that point, it really does become an exercise in investment management. That might put some of the burden on whoever is taking care of that plan to make sure that it's properly allocated, that we think about how we're going to manage income later on, all the issues that, of course, we can at least to some extent automate on a mutual funds platform normally. I want to give a little caveat here. There are a couple times in the discussion when Jonathan and I discussed some provincial variations, and it's important that you recognize that some of these are going to vary by province. So this is where the RDSP is a little bit problematic. Of course, the RDSP exists within the Income Tax Act, the Income Tax Act being federal legislation. But issues like probate, which we touch on in here, as well as capacity, which we also touch on in here, and the impact on your provincial disability supports, these are all provincial matters. And so these will vary by province, and it's good to get to know your particular rules by province. Now, currently, and Jonathan mentioned this, uh, we're in this temporary provision where the sort of provincial governments have said we're going to allow the federal government to have a hand in an estate outcome, and that's where we can have the plan owned by a parent or guardian, and really that person is treated as the plan owner for estate law purposes. That measure is set to expire in 2023. It will be interesting to see what happens with this. I expect there's somebody at Department of Finance who is putting the pressure on each of the provincial governments. And then, of course, I mentioned that uh, in New Brunswick in particular, New Brunswick's Provincial Disability Supports Program does not fully recognize RDSP income as being exempt in other provinces. So, for example, I'm in Alberta, where we have AISH, the Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped. And when you take your scheduled withdrawal, your LDAP out from your RDSP, and this would really only happen between ages 60 and 65, your AISH benefit stops at 65, and your LDAP starts at 60. So you're going to have a five-year overlap here. And in that five-year overlap, your LDAP payments, your lifetime disability assistance payments, do not count against your AISH income test. And then, of course, uh, what we have in every province is that you can accumulate assets within the RDSP and not impact your provincial disability supports. So there's a, a couple of considerations there that could vary by province. And again, you may have to get to know your particular province's rules. If you deal with a lot of folks with disability, I do think it's really good to get to know your provincial disability supports program rules. Everyone is different. Everyone looks at income differently and assets differently and treats clawbacks differently. And I should mention as well in there that the disability assistance payment, the one that you have to choose or elect to take out of the plan, that could be treated differently as well for the various uh, provincial disability supports programs. The number for today's episode is three. The number for today's episode is three. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. 
And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, I want to take a minute to give a plug to another podcast that I've recently fallen into. What actually happened here? I talked about this on a previous episode, but I recently attended the Financial Therapy Association conference, the annual FTA Association conference, which is so good. It's such a a wonderful conference. And I really would encourage you to check out the Financial Therapy Association if you find questions around client behavior interesting. It's a fairly inexpensive annual commitment, I think around $300, something like that, might be $250 but they have a a webinar every month that deals with some interesting behavioral or therapy-related money question. So the one that's upcoming right away here is around uh, really discussing end-of-life questions. And I've seen some really great presenters at that conference, and just their uh, journal is excellent. So there's lots of value in that Financial Therapy Association But actually something interesting that happened when I attended, of course, you see the list of participants and not very many Canadians there. It's an American organization. I think there were three Canadians at the conference, me and uh, a financial planner based here in Edmonton, a a fellow whom I know, actually, which I'm going to get to in a moment. And then a uh, recent grad from a therapy program out in uh, London. So we had a pretty small Canadian contingent. But the person who was there from Edmonton is actually a fellow name of uh, Sean. And Sean runs a podcast called The Most Hated F-Word. I met him at, uh, well, I'd gone to a couple of his uh, meetups for this. (laughs) And uh, Sean and I had discussed there. He really does find the whole psychology of money question quite interesting. He recently completed Creighton University's financial therapy program and He's got now, well, he's 16 episodes deep. I've only listened to, I think, four of them now. Got to manage my time a little bit. But uh, he has guests on who talk about the psychology of money. And it really does fill a niche. It's a, it's a podcast that uh, I've not seen anybody else doing. And lots of good academic folks on here, but not all academics. So I think you'll enjoy it if you pop over to the most hated F word podcast. And yeah, it's uh, nice to see somebody who is really putting this uh, heavy focus on psychology of money in a podcast form. So thanks for that one. I hope that you enjoy it. And thanks, Sean, for putting me onto it. That's good. And thanks for doing it for that matter, too. I think Sean listens to this podcast. So I think we'll uh, we'll get him uh, 
Hearing that plug, that's good. All right, and how about if we uh, come back in two weeks, you can join us for two weeks, where I'm gonna talk with Adrian about financial planning for physicians, a little bit of retirement planning, a little bit of hold co-planning here, and uh, really the, I don't know, opposite end of the spectrum financially from the concerns we normally see on the RDSP side, although there can be some overlap there. I shouldn't completely uh, discount that. Please do join us again in two weeks and enjoy your continued studies. A few people help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing and music and a bunch of the technology stuff in the background. Maria Nguyen gets all of our various accreditations done through the uh, various accrediting bodies. And Colton Nierbeski and his team make sure that the word gets out. They take care of the marketing and all that goes along with that. Mm-hmm.